Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semifinals, all thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply. Welcome to The Conversations That Could. I'm Dermot Brereton. This is a show where we talk to people from across the sporting landscape and we discuss issues surrounding mental health, the struggles, the successes and ways in which we can all support each other through the challenges that life presents. Our guest tonight is a swimming champion with more than 16 medals in major international competitions to his name, including being crowned the 100-metre freestyle world champion twice. At the London Olympics in 2012, the nation held its collective breath as he battled for gold in the 100-metre freestyle, missing out by just one hundredth of a second to his American rival. A moment that would define his career, but that he would ultimately come to understand was one of the most positive things to happen in his young life. It's my pleasure to welcome James Magnuson to the conversations that could for Are You OK? So, James, welcome. Thank you, Dermot. Happy to be here. Excellent. Now, it's just too easy to say, uh, you know, the, the James Magnuson that we saw blast onto our screens when we were watching all the swimming events, you know, the world-class swimming events. We saw this this brash 18, 19, 20-year-old missile that, that had swagger. It's just too easy to say that's the finished result. So let's hark back a fraction. Tell us about... What got you to there? I mean, you grew up in Port Macquarie? Yeah, that's right. So Port Macquarie, uh, it's about five hours north of Sydney. Um, it was a pretty basic uh, early story. I uh, just got into swimming through sort of school swimming carnivals and stuff. Loved it, enjoyed it, and then decided to join the local swimming club. No one anywhere on either side of the family had any swimming prowess, so there was certainly no expectations or pressure um, from that side of things. And, uh, yeah, it was quite yeah, humble beginnings. So the genetics, I mean, I, I've got no idea what height you actually are, but I look, looked at you on screen and said, this bloke's really tall. What what height are you? What So the length of your stroke, I'm just assuming you're around six foot four plus-ish? Yeah, six five, okay. 197 centimetres for the millennials who don't know feet. Um, <laughs> so we're still going feet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that definitely helped uh, with the swimming. But again, uh, Dad's just on six foot. I think Mum's about 5'4". She'll probably go mad on me if she hears that. But uh, certainly, again, it was a little bit of an anomaly um, with the height uh, side of things. And Port Macquarie, I, mean, I would imagine... Well, I do know. It's a fairly strong into rugby league and somebody your size at that age, you probably had options in other sports to pursue? Yeah, I played rugby league um, throughout my, my schooling years. So I swam in the summer, played rugby league in winter. The pool in Port Macquarie actually wasn't heated. So it would close between sort of April and September. So I didn't have the choice 
uh, to swim in, in those winter months. There was actually a couple of times just before I left home and, and moved to Sydney to swim when I was sort of 16, 17, where I made uh, junior Australian teams and uh, we'd go away to race in July or August and I'd just go in with no training because there was no pool in town for me to train in. So I'd just go in uh, pretty much completely unprepared. And um, win? And, and, uh, yeah, I won a couple of them. Yeah, <laughs> I was pretty much coming from a, a rugby league preseason yeah. into an uh, international junior swimming comp. You know, you get no uh, sympathy from a Victorian, a Melbourneite, who, when you say, oh, the pools were closed because it was just yeah. too cold. <laughs> we, we would swim in that water all year round up there. Hey, um, so tell us, you say you're a young, young, you're a teenage boy. You're even younger than that. And we hear about people in sports who just turn their hand to it and suddenly, bang, it just clicks. How did you know as a young lad, hey, look at this, I've just blown people out of the water. What, did you do anything extraordinary like your first swim in comp? Did you win by the length of the pool? Did you, did you do something that said this is extraordinary? To be honest, not really. Um, nobody around me ever thought that I was going to be a professional swimmer. I didn't think for a long time that I had the ability to be a professional swimmer. Um, I remember... I was coming up to the end of year 12. I was just about to do, uh, you know, the final exams in year 12 and started looking at some options uh, of, of what I could do after school. Um, and a couple of options popped up through swimming. So I was, I was getting pretty decent results in the age group swimming stuff. But again, nothing outstanding. And for most people, you know, most coaches, they wouldn't have even known, known my name. Uh, we traveled down here to Sydney and met with a coach who'd, who'd just signed on at Macquarie University here, here in, uh, in sort of North Shore of Sydney. And uh, we spoke to him. I sat down with my parents. And I remember when I spoke to this coach, he said, I've watched a bit of footage of your racing. I'd actually gone out to the pool and seen you at the, the age group nationals. And he said, if you come and train, uh, you know, yeah, come and train with me, I'm pretty confident I can turn you into an Olympian. Um my mum and dad nearly fell off their chairs. Uh, that was the first time anyone had ever said to us, or certainly to me, uh, this this guy can be an Olympian. And uh, at your age then? 17. Yep. Um, I, I don't know exactly what he saw. Uh, I don't know if it was physical attributes. I, I think he liked the fact that uh, I was quite raw. I was from the country. Um, I'd trained and kind of competed, like, like I spoke about earlier, and probably – suboptimal conditions, uh, never had a strength and conditioning coach, a dietitian, a sports scientist, a biomechanist, never had anything of that. I was very raw, just a, a big country kid. Um, and he saw a diamond in the rough. And, and honestly, I, I remember talking to my parents afterwards and we were trying to figure out, you know, is this guy a, a used car salesman? Is he being serious or is he, <laughs> is he taking the piss and just, you know, trying to convince me by saying he thinks I, I could be an Olympian? Mm. Can I ask, in, in swimming, we see in so many other sports, there are naturals and there are the ones not so natural who work harder. And then there is the 1% who are pure natural and work that hard. What would you call yourself at that stage? Ooh, I think at that stage, uh, I was natural in terms of I had the physical attributes, uh, but I, I was always a hard worker. I think you, when you compare something like swimming, right, 
compared to the football codes, um, for example, which which most uh, yep. of our listeners will be more but, familiar with. So you've got to have the natural physical attributes. Like you'll never watch an Olympic final of 100 freestyle and see a bloke under six foot. Do- doesn't happen. Uh, you can't you can't outwork those physical attributes. Yeah. But when you want to be the best in the world at a sport that is has such huge levels of participation and is uh, really based on pure purely physical attributes, right? Like you you can't. There's no uh, sort of match awareness or you know, a skill set, an in-game skill set that can give you the edge even though you might not be the biggest, fastest or strongest. This is pure pure physicality really. So not only do you need the physical attributes, but you have to be the hardest worker to be the best in the world in swimming. There's simply nowhere to hide. So I learned that pretty quickly uh, when I first made the Australian team. I learned that, you know, I can get on this team by, by being... Uh, you know, naturally talented and, and a pretty hard worker. But if I want to be the best in the world, then I've got to take this thing to a whole new level. I have to outwork every single person that I interact with in the swimming world. I've got to outwork them. I've got to outlift them. I've got to be stricter with my diet. I've got to sleep more. I've, I've got to be the best in the world at everything if I want to get to the, the tippity top of this sport. So you've just been told by a, a coach scout that you, he could turn you into an Olympian. For for us who play local sport and have played a bit of sport in our time, tell us the training regime, the times involved, the the, the time of day involved for training. Uh, the first time you got serious under that tutelage. Yeah, so it's it's pretty much a, f- a full-time job. Um, you sort of start around 5 o'clock in the morning, do two and a half to three hours in the pool. You're in at um, 5. You're in the pool at water at 5. Yeah, yeah you, in you the water at that. 5. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's it's tough hours. It's 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 interesting. It's It breeds a level of uh, discipline that most swimmers I know, and this is not only – the, the ones that, you know, had their names up in lights. It's probably even more so the ones that I swim with through age group swimming. They've all gone on to be quite successful in life generally yep. because of the discipline that they learnt through swimming. It's a common occurrence that in in sport, those that are disciplined, even in, in football, the football world, I, I know that the guys who I saw as teammates who were really disciplined are the same. They've gone on to make complete and utter successes of themselves outside of the sporting world. Yeah, and it's really nice to see. And, and like I said, these are not necessarily the big names that you've you've heard about on TV. This is these are the guys that you don't see that that turned up every morning, even though they weren't on the Olympic team or even though they weren't you know getting paid to, to be there. So it's I think that's a nice thing that sport does. It, it teaches you a, a skill set. Uh, that can transfer to any aspect of life. Um, and that, that's one thing I always talk to parents and kids about when they say, oh, I'm worried that swimming is going to affect my kids' ability to study or uh, will they have time to be successful with their schoolwork if they're off swimming and training so often. Sport teaches you a, a set of lessons, a set of life lessons that very few other things in life can teach you. Um, and and I, I always try to get that point across to parents. Swimming gives you a level of discipline that really is, is unrivaled, the hours that we have to keep and the fact that we have to be self-motivated, 
um, self-disciplined. And then when you're swimming, like we, I just spoke about doing, you know, two and a half, three hours of, of swimming in that morning at five o'clock, you're not talking to your coach while you're swimming. You're not talking to the other swimmers. Your head's in the water. You're looking at that black line. You're left to your own thoughts. It's, uh, it's uh, even I look back on it now and think, how did I do that many hours uh, in the pool left uh, to my own thoughts, to that, that own, my own internal dialogue? I sit down now for half an hour that, uh, during a day when I've got some free time and I almost find it hard to be left alone with my own thoughts now, whereas in swimming I was doing 30 hours a week of internal monologue. So that I would, I used to call that the swirl. Like when we were doing preseason, we we'd run endlessly. It felt endless, you know. We'd be doing yeah. uh, several days a week. There'd be ten k runs, and then you'd get back to the oval, and then there'd be, you know, a series of six four hundred meter runs, and and you'd almost be like a racehorse, and you go to sleep, and you'd develop a rhythm, and in the inside that rhythm in your head, you'd be but up a da. As your feet strikes the ground, and it yeah. was just the swirl of the endless rhythm, and the thoughts that come and go through your head while you're in really stressful, physically stressful. That is moments. Your mind goes many, many places. Yeah, absolutely, and particularly, um, it, it's it's very dependent on where you are in your general life. So I'm a big believer. If you know you get your ducks in a row outside of sport, outside of the pool, then results kind of mirror that. The reason being, if I if I'm spending thirty hours with my head in the water a week, and I'm left to my own thoughts, if if I've just had, uh, you know, a recent breakup, or uh, you know, there's something new on the horizon, or if I've got a big meet coming up, or if I've you know had a road rage incident on the on the way to training, suddenly you're left stewing over that. And that's the residing thought in your mind while you're doing all this work. Yeah. And it can really it can really impact what you're doing. Um, so towards oh, pretty pretty early on in my career, to start my career I didn't I didn't think about that space at all. But post uh, post London we brought in a mind coach uh, into our high performance program as much to get my life in general um, in line with, with how I wanted to perform and, and making sure that it wasn't uh, impacting uh, my training and, and my racing. When I've watched sport, there are three types of sports in the world where swagger means everything. One is the men's 100-metre final. We've all seen uh, at the Olympics, at track and field. We've all seen the swagger of the the combatants who stand on the line. And I think Linford Christie never held a world record, but he was a racer. And the swagger he had before, before the event, boxing the world heavyweight champion, the swagger with which they walk to the ring, and it's the trash talk and the swagger, and the fifty slash hundred, they sort of blend into one for the viewer in the pool. The swagger of the big guys, big long, pardon me, bastards like yourself, James, <laughs> who swagger their way to the pool, and it's it's. Everything that says I'm the man, you can't beat me. When did you develop that swagger, and was it forced, or did it come naturally? Oh, that was that was a learned behaviour. Um, that certainly was not a natural attribute that I had uh, growing up, or or even in my day to day life outside of the pool. 
I think the hardest thing about, I won't say manufacturing that swagger, but you know, you have to, you have to believe that you're the best to win at those events. Um, I think the one thing in common that, that all three events you just spoke about is any little mistake at, at any given point during that performance and it's all over. A micro example, mistake, yeah. Yeah, yeah. A, a, a boxer makes one little slip, gets knocked out. You know, one mistake, he's gone. The You missed the start in the 100-meter uh, running final, it's over. It's the same in swimming in the 100 freestyle, which is the the blue ribbon event, is... You make one mistake at any given point during that 47 seconds and you may as well uh, take the cap and goggles off and hop out of the pool. It's all over. So the stakes are so high and the pressure is so high that you have to be convinced in your own mind that A, you're the best swimmer in that pool and B, uh, that you're going to win before, before it even happens. I can honestly say I've never in my life gone into a race and thought, I can't win this race, and then touched the wall and gone, oh, wow, that's a huge surprise. I won. <laughs> any, any race I've ever won, I thought or I believed that I was going to win that race before yeah. I got in the pool. Um, so you have to convince yourself. And it's a, a really bizarre thing, Dermot. You know, growing up in Port Macquarie and, and being told most of my childhood by teachers and friends and family, uh, it's an unrealistic goal to for someone from Port Macquarie to go to an Olympic Games, uh, you know, never really being touted as the next big thing or, or, you know, certainly never having an elevated opinion of myself or seeing myself as anything but a, a normal guy. It's very hard to convince yourself that you are the best in the world. Did you take much self-convincing? Yeah, I, did. I think I think the way I had to do it was I had to learn it and, and sort of manufacture it in training every day. I, I remember leading into a world champs once. I was practicing uh, getting up on the lane ropes and flexing after we were doing uh, main sets to try and, you know, envision doing that at a world championships, convincing myself, yeah, you're the man, you're, you can do this, uh, <laughs> trying to force it. And, and it, it, it did start to come, um, you know, in sort of those, those late teens, it, it, it started to, to come on a bit. But again, it was always very forced and um, I think people around me would have been surprised by that confidence uh, on a world stage because it certainly wasn't who I was uh, away from the pool. I'll, I'll give you a little insight. Same thing with a young teenage kid. I can remember taking well, overhead marks for AFL football, screamers overhead using my bed as the landing pad and commentating to myself as a 12, 13-year-old and envisioning, you know, being an adult doing yeah. it. Uh, it. But like you say, Port Macquarie, I mean, you walk home at night and you, you must have looked down your street and seen that little house and on that little street and seen the entire neighbourhood. And it's surreal to think the best swimmer in the world comes from this street here. How, how do I convince myself that I'm the best swimmer in the world? It, yeah, it's, it always seemed so implausible. Um, I, I remember, uh, I think I was about 16, I went away with my parents to the national championships. Yep. We were up in, uh, up in Brisbane, I think, for the national championships. And 16 is the age where I started to progress a bit. I started to grow a bit, fill out a bit, and, and get better at swimming. 
And uh, I won the 100 freestyle that year um, for my age group as a 16-year-old. And I remember going uh, on a family holiday with, with mum and dad after that, uh, after that nationals. We went to uh, Wet n' Wild or something like that. And I remember saying to, to mum and dad, I said, how cool is this? No matter where I go in Australia, there's no, there's no other 16-year-olds that could beat me in a swimming race. Like, that feels surreal. And they were like, yeah, it's crazy. I can't believe how far you've progressed. Fast forward four years, only four years later, I remember standing on the podium at the World Championships. I've just won the world title and become the fastest man ever. And I'm standing there and I literally thought back to that time on the Gold Coast that went wild. And I thought, this is the most bizarre feeling to know that I'm the fastest man on the planet. It just, it, it feels so surreal. You've spent all this time and effort progressing through the ranks and swimming is one of those sports where, excuse the pun, but it always feels like there's a bigger fish. You know, you, you win in your local Port Macquarie area, you go down to Sydney, oh, there's a better guy. You win in Sydney, you go to nationals, there's someone better for Brisbane. You win at nationals, you go to, to Asia, there's a better kid in Japan or China. There's always seems to be a bigger fish. And but there you wasn't. You, yeah, th there wasn't. And it's a really bizarre feeling. And it's really hard then to go back to training and kind of come to grips with that, but then refocus and realign on, all right, you're the fastest in the world. Barring those suits, you're the fastest in history. What What are we doing now? Like what's next? Yeah, you'd, you'd jump on a flight, I'd imagine. You look down while you're traveling – and you look down at the world, the earth, and say, I'm the quickest swimmer on that thing. Yeah, it's strange, <laughs> isn't it? it? It's still to this day. And that's probably that's, that's my fond, probably my fondest memory about my whole career was that realisation standing there on that podium with the, the anthem playing going, oh, right, I'm the fastest swimmer in the world. That is really weird. Well, that's going to give you some swagger, and it's also going to do some things to your confidence, good and bad, and we're going to get into that next. I'm Dermot Burton, and our guest is James Magnuson, and this is the Conversations That Could for Are You OK? Brought to you by Dare Ice Coffee. Dare Ice Coffee, a proud partner of Are You OK? The Conversations That Could with Dermot Burton. Mate not feeling great? A dare fix won't fix it, but a conversation could. Ask Are You OK? So, James, we've mentioned you've got the swagger, you're the world champion, and there were people within your own camp saying, these blokes are out of control. These guys are ahead of themselves. You do happen to be the fastest swimmer in the world over 100 metres, but some of your own team were saying, these guys are ahead of themselves. Were they right? Uh you got to say, well, look, history says potentially, but I think at the time, no. I, I think that the, the tough thing that ended up happening around that time, Dermot, was that we'd had this uh, really storied history in swimming of multiple big names at any given time. Um, for example, just before my era, you had... Uh, Stephanie Rice, Liesl Jones, Libby Trickett, mm. all Jess Shipper, all winning gold medals at Olympics, all at the same time. Suddenly, 2011 rolls around, uh, leading into the London Olympics, and we get one individual gold medal as a swim team. Uh, and that so happens to be, to be me in the 100 freestyle. All of a sudden, we're going, well, A, we've only got one gold medalist. B, this is the 100 freestyle. This is the biggest event in swimming. 
we haven't had a gold medalist in 100 freestyle since uh, Mike Wendon back in the 70s. So it was just the perfect storm of, uh, I guess, swimming hysteria that, that kind of ended up with me getting put on this pedestal that was above and beyond anything I, I ever imagined and or wanted. Um, certainly, I knew... Uh, and the people you know close to me in my camp knew it's less than ideal to have a swimmer going into an Olympic Games, into his first Olympic Games. It was only the second international meet that I'd swum at as an individual swimmer. It was an Olympic Olympic mm. Games. Suddenly, I'm going in there as the face of it. And those, you remember, I, I spoke about having to manufacture that confidence and and that swagger. Uh, part of that for me was. Uh, verbalizing my goals. It was something that I always did with my coach. It was something that I did with other swimmers. When we'd sit down and talk about things, what do you want to do? Well, I want to win. Do you want to qualify for the world champs? Yeah, I want to qualify, but I want to win those world champs. And then I get out of the pool and the you know, the media or whoever's interviewing me says, well, what do you want to do at this Olympic Games? And I say, I want to win. You know, I'm there to win. That's the, sta- and- that's the, that's the standard. Yeah. That's, I'd be crazy to say, well, I just won a world championships, but I'm just happy to participate at this Olympics. And that's, that's the line that gets rolled out, right? Yep. I've got people at Swimming Australia saying to me, we want you to just say, oh, I'm happy to be there. Um, I'm just making up the numbers, sort of downplay the expectations. And I said, uh, look, I'm going there to win. I think in an interview I did, I think it was Howie, uh, and, and these interviews, Howie's a great guy. These interviews catch you off guard a little bit because you get out of the pool, you're puffing, you're emotional. I just qualified for my, my first Olympic Games, so this is the Olympic trials. Swam the fastest time in history again. Get out of the pool, huffing, puffing. Howie, and again, the swag is on. And yeah. Howie says, have you got a message for the other swimmers in the 100 freestyle? Yeah, I remember this. Yeah. And I said, brace yourselves. <laughs> and a 20-year-old guy saying brace yourselves to his competitors, right? Yeah. That's pretty run-of-the-mill, particularly if if you're the best in, in your craft. Um, however, and, and up until then, people around me had been saying, play it down, play it down, uh, say you're happy to be there, whatever. This this thing kind of took off a bit. And all of a sudden, the, the opinions swung. So, so now Swimming Australia is saying to me, we love this stuff. Like this is this is box office stuff. We're we're getting huge viewerships on on your races. We're getting an influx of sponsors. Uh, you know, swimming's back in the headlines. It's getting back pages of the paper. People are people are really getting around this. Um, so th- so by the time the Olympics were coming around, all the advice I was getting and everyone in my camp was saying more or less, uh, go for it, you know, ham yeah. it up. Let's do this thing. You, you are, you are the, the guy. Um, and, and I think that's, look, privately again, completely different story, but publicly I think that's where the, the, the enigma of the missile started overtaking the humble beginnings of, of James Magnuson. Did you, did you feel like it was something well, you can control it, but it, it's something that was expected of you. It was the visual persona, and so you you lived up to it. Yeah, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. I felt 
towards getting closer to the Olympics, I, I felt like that's what people wanted. And the, the thing I found most difficult about it was uh, it was getting really hard to switch off and to get away from it. For example, like the, I, I don't know if you remember at the time, but every second ad you turned on TV yeah, I and I was seeing my own head on, on the TV screen. Um, I, I had a list of sponsors, you know, a mile long. I couldn't get away from it. I'd go to the shopping center. People would constantly stop me. Anywhere I went out in public, people would, would stop me. Um, uh, you know, again, I'd come from these very humble beginnings where, and, and when I moved to Sydney, I was living in literal anonymity. Nobody knew who I was and, and I really liked that. I really enjoyed that. By the time that Olympics came around, I couldn't step out my front door. Um, and I found that really difficult to try and switch off and to try and live a normal life. So are you just I, I just to, couldn't escape it. If I can interject there, are you a little bit uh, introverted? Do you withdraw naturally as a person or are you a natural extrovert? So tell us about the personality you are that deals with all that mass, that mass of fame. Yeah, I'm, I'm very introverted. Um, anyone that knows me, uh, will tell you the same thing. I really struggled to, well, well, particularly back then, I struggled in in uh, social settings. I struggled to make friends and, and meet new people. Um, I was a very introverted person, and I think a big part of that, right, is the sport I do. I, like I said, I spend 30 hours a week with my own thoughts. Between those 30 hours a week, I, I go home, I rest, I recover. I'm not socializing or interacting with other people. So I'm, I'm definitely a naturally introverted person, which is why it was so hard to, to kind of, uh, you know, pump myself up and, and kind of believe um, what, what I was saying and it, why it was so difficult for me when I couldn't get away from that and just switch it off and uh, just go back to being who I was and, and, and having a little bit of quiet time and downtime away from that very public persona. Because you are practicing your personality when you're, when you're under the pressure of your sport and you're heading the water for three hours a day. You've got three hours of your thirts, thoughts that practice your personality. It, it, it contributes to an isolation uh, mentality, I would imagine. Yeah, I think uh, I spoke about this the other day with someone, you know, and the, and the result in London and, and, and how, how that affected my life generally. Um, leading into that London Olympics, there was a lot of people that came into my life uh, around that period. There was a lot of people that, that came into my life knowing uh, the missile and the world champion and the fastest swimmer alive, not knowing uh, James Magnus and the person. Yeah. And I had so many people in my life telling me all the time, you know, you're the best, you're the greatest. Uh, yes to this, yes to that. Skipping lines at nightclubs, free drinks, girls, partying, all that kind of stuff. There was a lot of people that came along for that ride. And that, uh, you know, that's that's something that happens in sport, I think. You know, I, I ended up... Sounded surrounded... like the 80s to me there, James. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I ended up surrounded by yes men yeah. and people that were just blowing smoke up my ass. And not only was I getting that privately, uh, publicly, that's all that was going on as well. Anywhere I went, um, you know, it was just people telling me how good I was. But people were literally saying, can't wait to see you win gold 
in London. They well, wouldn't say looking forward to watching you race or, you know, find your races exciting. Looking forward to seeing you win gold as if it was a, a, a foregone conclusion. Well, I, I'm one of those, James, and, and I and I – and I now look back at it, hearing you talk and having read about your, your, your plight and your uh, and your journey, I looked at those Olympics in 2012 and I remember saying to myself, all right, go, let's go through the teams. Who's a chance to win one? Who can we say is a chance to, to get a gold to couple along with James Magnuson's gold? Because he'll win it. And you, yeah. you're the only one that, I, that we said he's going to get win a gold. He's yeah. that far ahead of them. Yeah. And then we were saying, plus, who else has a chance? So it was Magnuson plus the chances. Did you feel the weight of a nation putting that pressure on you? Yeah, I did. I did. And not at first. So, I, you know, the, the world champs happened, the, the Olympic trials happened, everything was panning out nicely. Uh but as I say, just the weight of sheer public interest and scrutiny started to weigh on me. Remembering before this year, before 2012, I won the world champs in, in 2011. Before that, no one, I'd, I'd never been on news stations, never been in the paper, never been talked about, never been stopped in public for a photo or an, or an autograph. So this was essentially my first time in the public spotlight. That, that was coupled with uh, the biggest event, you know, in, in the world coming up and, and the expectations around that. So And you're 20? And I'm 20 years of age, yeah. So it all came on really thick and really fast and something that I was never prepared for. Yeah. You know, people can do um, media training or, you know, things like that. They can do bits and pieces, but no one can prepare you for public scrutiny at any age, you know, if someone's never experienced it, you could put a 60-year-old 60, 60 person in the spotlight right now and say, here's 20 million Australians who are going to give the, their opinion on, on you as a person and, and what you do for work and, and how you perform. And they'll struggle. No, no one is prepared for that. No one can prepare for that. And it just so happened that I experienced that right on the eve of a, a really big event. We'll talk about the event and the aftermath on the other side. The conversations that could with Dermot Brereton. When your mate bottles it up, a dare fix won't fix it. But a conversation could. Ask, are you okay? Welcome back to the conversations that could for Are You Okay? I'm Dermot Brereton. And tonight we're delving into the mindset of former Olympic swimming champion, James Magnuson. So James, you go to the Olympics, 2012 and you touch the pad 0.01 of a second after uh, the American. It's roughly the time it takes for a dart to, when it actually is hitting the board, to sink in. That's that's the difference between being a, a silver and a gold medalist. An incredible, an incredible race, I must say, to watch. Um, and there were there were... 20 million people just on the edge of their seat, all rooting for you. The aftermath. Tell me what happened to you, what what you felt in the aftermath. Well, obviously, I think I, I was disappointed. I think um, I'd say probably embarrassed would be one of the words. It's, Why? It's a, I think because I expected so much of myself. It's it's funny, like, uh, and and you know, we debriefed on that race, and it was a good race. Everything 
um, everything I did, you know, I stuck to the race plan. I executed. Um, swimming is one of those funny sports, right? So we have the trials in April and the Olympics are in August. So your form fluctuates. And I didn't race between then. So we didn't exactly know where I was at. The time I swam was still fast enough to win any other Olympics in history. It still would have been won at the Rio Olympics four years later. It's yeah. only this this Tokyo Olympics just gone that, that swimmers are finally beating the time that, that, that I did to get silver there. So it, it actually was, you know, a really good race and, and there was nothing that I could be that I could pinpoint and say, I stuffed up here, I made this mistake. But you had I, swum swam. You had uh, swim quicker. Is ever, yep. ever, ever so slightly. We're talking about fractions of a hundredth. Yeah. It's quicker. Yep. But it, was there any moment that contributed to the, that point three of a second slower? I think the thing that happens uh, is you never see the fastest times in uh, sprint freestyle. Or if you look at, uh, for example, the 100 metres in the Olympics, you pretty much never see the fastest race in the final. The reason being the theater of it, the increased competition, um, you know, you've gone through a heats and a semis to get there, so you're not super fresh. Whereas in Australia, you swim a heat in the morning, which is pretty cruisy. You just roll through that, bam, there you are at night, ready to go. You, you know you've won that race before you get in the water, like a nationals, when you're the best in the world. Yeah, right. So there's no real nerves or pressure at all. It's just, bam, let's execute this thing. So it's it's a completely different ball game in the final of an Olympic Games. Um, so is it that Linford Christie moment, the racer gets there rather than the bloke who can swim the absolute fastest time? Yeah, potentially. Potentially. I think it's just a culmination of uh, everything uh, being perfect for that, that one day. Um, there's so many extra factors that go into an Olympics compared to a, a national champs or a world champs. You know, you're staying in a village you're sleeping in single beds that come out to about midpoint of my shins. You're eating in a food hall that, you know, you've got to walk a kilometre to get to the food hall, another kilometre to get to the bus, another kilometre to get from the bus to the pool. So you're walking sort of 6Ks a day back and forth. There's so many factors that go on um, outside of the race that contribute to, to your performance. And one of the, the – probably the most annoying thing for me when I look back on my career uh, – Physically, I was in great shape for that Olympic Games. Um, but mentally, I didn't have the coping mechanisms to deal with everything we just spoke about, to, de yeah. to deal with the distractions of an Olympic village, the different uh, surroundings, the, the media, the pressure, the other competitors, all that stuff. I was a 20-year-old kid who didn't have the coping, coping mechanisms to deal with those things because I quite simply had never experienced it before. I'd never encountered these things. People kept saying to me, oh, an Olympic Games is different. And I was like, well, oh, yeah, okay. I mean, I assume it is. I, I don't know how, mm. but sure, sure thing, I'll do my best. By the time I got to the 2016 Olympics, physically I was, I was pretty busted. I had a, I'd had a shoulder reconstruction just before that Olympic Games and I knew physically that I was nowhere near my peak but I get to the Olympic Games I get to the village and I think oh, I know exactly how to handle all of this I have the perfect perfect coping mechanisms for everything there's nothing I haven't seen or done here before uh, you know mentally I could nail this thing now and uh, keeping in mind I'm only 25 at this point uh, yeah. at my second Olympics still very but young physically, physically I'm busted 
And I look back on that career and e- even my mindset now as, as a 31-year-old and I go, if I could put uh, this head on those shoulders, it's, that, that is an unbeatable combination. Yeah. But you, you don't know what you don't know. And, and young kids are always going to make mistakes. And the thing I find crazy looking back on it, particularly looking back on the fallout from that Olympics and the scrutiny and some of the press conferences and some of the criticism, I just think, how did that... How did that 21-year-old kid get out of bed each day and, and keep going and keep training and keep representing his country uh, having copped that? I, I look at that now from a 31-year-old's perspective, looking back at a 20-year-old, and I just think I, I don't know how I did it. Yeah, no, not just because I'm speaking to you today, but I heard some of the things that, that have been said in the aftermath, and I was just almost Australianly you know, ashamed of some of the things that were said about a 20-year-old boy who'd given his all and, and gone so close. But, yeah, it, it was a weird time to be Australian and hear those things. And as I said, I was also in the wrong because I expected you to win. Interesting to see a couple of years ago, because I actually like watching the show, the SAS special yeah. that comes on. Yeah, and it it resonated, and I reckon it'd resonate with so many people. How you said you'd you'd learn to just shut your emotions inside, you compartmentalise them, and wouldn't let anyone see your emotions for for a decade after that race, and and the the things that had been said, and the way you'd been spoken about. Yeah. I think, uh, yeah, so th- that was a big part of, of my coping mechanism was uh, I felt those things at the time and I, th- I think I just made a decision, the only way to overcome this, the only way to wear that green and gold again and represent the people that have just absolutely hammered me publicly, the only way I can cope with this is to shut those feelings off and it, it worked for a period of time. You know, I was able to go back out, win another world title, represent my country, do, do my thing, retain that swagger. But the problem was in, in shutting off those emotions, uh, it basically led to me shutting off all, all emotions. Um, so I remember, you know, winning big races, winning com games or winning world champs or whatever it might be and not feeling anything. Um and I think that's one of the, you know, I, again, I find that really tough when I look back and go, you know, I was the fastest in the world for a five-year period and won everything in between. Yeah. And a lot of those moments I didn't enjoy. And it probably only SAS did, did highlight that for me, which was quite bizarre. It was not something I was expecting to learn. You know, we've got these uh, special forces soldiers for you know, all intents and purposes seem to be the most unemotional guys <laughs> in the world. Yeah, yeah. And they're looking at me and, you know, I watched it back and they're saying, wow, this guy's really, you know, got no emotions. He's worse than us. And I was like, oh, and my girlfriend was watching at the time and she said, see that? That's how unemotional you are is it, these guys who are renowned for it are saying that you can't show emotions. And... That's probably you know it's a tough thing to reflect on, and it's it's I know it's I I know for a fact it's tough on the people around me that, um you know that I've had big successes and big things happen in my life, and they probably don't think that that I appreciate it or that that I'm happy or excited about those things happening, 
Um, so it's something that I'm, I'm working on. It's a work in progress. The same as building up that uh, that macho persona and and swagger. Well, there's it's nothing the wrong way. with that. There's, no, there's nothing wrong with that that persona. But in the moments where you you feel comfortable, you probably. I'm not giving you advice. I'm just saying yeah. uh, pers- for anybody, they probably need to have some emotional outlets and they probably need to have trusted allies they can do that around. Did you have them? I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I don't think so. I think I probably lacked consistency in the people around me throughout my career. Um, you know, I had uh, friends come and go, coaches come and go, support staff come and go. I was living in Sydney away from family that whole time. So, uh, you know, didn't have family around me consistently. So I I think that's where I struggle. It's like, who do I share these emotions with? Um, And how do I express these emotions when I've tried so hard to suppress them? And you can imagine it would be a bloody frustrating thing being in a relationship with me. And, you know, you you buy a house together or you you know get a new pet together or something and you look across at bloody stone face across the way and think does this guy enjoy anything does he get any sort of enjoyment out of life and internally I do I do Darren. I do enjoy things and I I am you know really happy with my life but I guess yeah I, I'm a work in progress trying to learn to express those emotions again because that those same emotions that I expressed in my early life Oh, were almost my downfall at the time and were the thing that people used against me to tear me down. So, yeah, it's a work in progress. It's very true. They used what you gave them, what they wanted, what you thought they wanted, what, what the advertisements wanted, that swagger. They used that against you later on. And that, that sport that you were in, such an insular sport, you can be in a team relay, but you're in the water for that leg only you with your head down and it it makes for an insular uh, the momentum of your mind is always moving forward singularly to touch that pad to give somebody else a go but but, but it is a singular sport uh, those moments you talk about the withdrawing i mean we had a coach we loved in Australian rules football in fact actually yesterday was the 11th anniversary of his passing why do i know that i because he was like a father to us and when when he passed away, there were men who, 100 kilo men who would tear your head off to get a footy, but they were just crying on each other's shoulders and they let out all this emotion because they were allowed to, because they had teammates that they were always there with. So I feel for you in, in that sport, as much as it's glorious and it's wonderful to watch you representing Australia and going from end to end and breaking world records... In the moment, apart from standing on the end and raising your fists, you're not really sharing it in the moment, are you? It's yeah, it's it's a really good point. Um, I, I think that that is part of it, right? So you finish that race, and and the first thing you do, you go through a, a media mix zone, and there yep. might be a couple of hundred media from all around the world. And it's just sinking in for you that either you've just become a world champion or you've just got a silver medal or whatever that is. There literally isn't a person to share it with. And the first people that get a look at your emotions are the viewers at home on TV. You don't get a chance to hug your coach or see your mum and dad or nothing, none of that. You get out of the pool, you go straight in front of the world media, people from all around the world are screaming all sorts of questions with you. 
and you live out those emotions live for the for the world to see. And I think that's where a big part of that coping mechanism came in. It's like I don't have a shoulder to to cry on. I don't have a, a, a fist to raise with someone. It's me and me on my own. And uh, a big part of uh, my mindset for the later part of the career was around con- controlling those emotions and kind of trying to keep on a, a level playing field so throughout the roller coaster that is a, a world championship week or a, an Olympics week where you've got multiple races, ups and downs, and trying to maintain that, that level head throughout, it's uh, the same way that that persona and that, that, that macho um, outward sort of going persona can, to, can leak into your everyday life. Mm. Suppressing those emotions leaks into everyday life as well. I, I could sit here and talk with you for ages. I'm fascinated by your journey and the way you've emotionally dealt with it. Uh, before we let you go, you, I still see uh, the early mornings mean nothing to you. You're doing breakfast radio. and or What's life for James Magnuson like now? Yeah, that's right. So I'm working up here in Sydney on SEN, um, doing breakfast radio at the moment, which is good fun. Um, just about to open a gym here in Sydney. Uh, I own a gym equipment company. Um, I've just made the move east here in Sydney to to Bondi with with my partner. Oh, you're um, tough. So, so yeah, <laughs> we're, we're living in Bondi, going for a swim each morning. And you're a Port uh, Macquarie boy. What are you doing? I know. That's what a couple of the folks here at SEN say. They say used to be a knockabout. Now look at you living in. Living in Bondi. No, I'm I'm really enjoying life, Dermot. I'm really enjoying life after swimming, um, and I'm enjoying the fact now that I can I can watch swimming and appreciate the athletes today. We've got, uh, in my opinion, our, our best ever swim team in history, um, and I'm really looking forward to to seeing those guys do their thing at the upcoming Com Games. Well, James Magnuson, I can say, and I know a lot of my friends think exactly the same. You've lived an extraordinary life. There's you're not even halfway through it yet, but you've you've <laughs> lived the absolute high life. You've achieved beyond everybody's wildest dreams. You've been humbled, and you've come through the other side a darn good Aussie bloke. So well done, mate. Oh, thanks a lot, Tom. It means a lot. I'm Dermot Burton, and we'll be back next week. And remember, when your mate bottles it up, a dare fix won't fix it, but a conversation could. Ask, are you okay? Thanks for listening. The Conversations That Could with Dermot Brereton. Mate not feeling great? A dare fix won't fix it, but a conversation could. Ask, are you okay?